Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Pastor Jim Remington. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 23 is where we left off, verse by verse. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for all you're doing in our midst. It's very grieving what's happening in our world, and it has been happening for thousands of years, the persecution. But it is very real, once again, in Afghanistan. The reports are coming out of our brothers and sisters in Christ being hunted, being executed, men, women, and children. This is not propaganda. It's reality coming out from the ground, from those who live there. And so we pray for wisdom and discernment for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted in Afghanistan, but India is on the rise. India, the last few years, heavy persecution in India, burning down churches, killing families. The gospel is hated by our spiritual enemy. And it has come to the whole world, not as drastic, but lockdowns, shame, guilt. And so Lord, we pray for wisdom in dealing with this world as Bible-believing Christians. For you love them. You love those who are being persecuted and you love the persecutors, even as you love Saul. And he could not forget Stephen. He was so convicted over that man's death that he stood over and judged. So Lord, we even pray for those who are persecuting that you would open their eyes to their eternal destiny, hell, apart from you, Father. For we know, we hear stories of Jesus appearing in dreams and and Muslims seeking out Christians and getting saved. Lord, we know your ways are not our ways and we don't understand. But we do understand this, for God so loved the world. You love every single person on this earth and you are trying to reach them in your ways that are far above our ways. And we thank you for that. For we can identify that you reached us I know I wasn't seeking after you, but you sought after me. And I thank you for seeking after me and opening up my eyes as a sinner in need of a Savior back in 78 to receive your Son. Lord, we pray for anyone in this room this morning that does not know Jesus as their Savior, that they would realize they're a sinner in need of a Savior, that they would repent this morning, they would acknowledge their sin, and their need for a Savior, and they would receive Jesus as their Savior at the end of this service. Open their spiritual eyes, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All things are lawful for me, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So important for us as believers this morning living in 2021, heading into 22, amazingly enough. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And that word edify there is architecture or build up, building up. 
Verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Each other's. He's writing to the church in Corinth, so he's writing to believers, which we've studied over the years. We're to be uh, hospitable, we're to be polite, we're to be loving to all people, all people, church members as well as non-church members. But Paul this morning is saying, you church members, don't seek after your own, and we'll get into this more in chapter 11, but seek after the well-being of others. You see, the ultimate example that anyone could ever give is loving someone else, unconditionally. That's called agape love. Notice that Paul put this lawful thing right in the middle of these teachings of sacrifices, So many things in this life are lawful, but they are not edifying. So Paul was not willing to cause someone to stumble as we've been studying. He didn't want to cause someone to stumble or get hurt over something temporal. He was not willing to do this. And this needs to be our mindset as well as believers. Um, Our mindset when we're born is it's all about me. Life revolves around me. And we become teens and life revolves around me. And we become adults and hopefully... We've matured enough to where life does not revolve around me. Shouldn't. You should realize it doesn't. But there are still many adults that think life does revolve around them. Maybe not as drastically as a young child or as a teenager. But you can tell by their attitude they still think life revolves around them. Not in Paul's life. Remember what he said back in chapter 8, verse 13, in 1 Corinthians eight thirteen. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul's life as a believer was one that was willing to die to self, die to self, in order to bless someone else. Something that wasn't in his life as a religious Pharisee. Let's look at verses 25 through 30. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. Now in context, in that day and age, they would offer sacrifices to idols And then they would bring that sacrifice home to eat, to partake of with their family. And so in context, this is hard for us to understand, grasp, or even really apply into our lives. Uh, Hopefully here at the end I can work that in. But that's what's being said here. Don't ask any questions. Was this sacrifice to... Hey, by the way, was this sacrifice to an idol? Don't ask. Don't ask. Just sit down, eat, enjoy. But, verse 28, if anyone says to you, This was offered to idols. Now as a believer living in Corinth, now you have to take a stand for your Christian faith. Do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not for your own, but for the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Remember in chapters uh, eight, uh, 9 and 10, as well as going to be 11, that Paul is talking about Christian liberties, that we have those liberties, but we need to be careful about those liberties, that we don't cause someone else to stumble. So if I go into a house and they say, hey, this has been offered to an idol, and I go, fantastic, bring it on, I'll take seconds. 
I'm actually condoning that practice. I'm endorsing it. I'm saying it's fine. It's not a problem. I'll eat with you as a Christian. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that. And we should be doing the same thing in our lives. Now, obviously, we're not going to say, did you buy this at Fry's? <laughs> well, I can't eat it. It came from Fry's. I only eat what comes from Bashes or Albertson. You're not going to do that, obviously. So how can we apply this to our lives? Well, there are many things that we could go down the road for, but how about alcohol for sake, you know? Because that's a national problem. In case you haven't figured that out, that is a national problem. Very, very serious problem. Alcoholism, abuse of alcohol is a national problem. So you as a believer go into a person's house, believer or non-believer, and they say, hey, you know what, We're, we have a little wine with our meal, or we, we, you know, would you like a bud? You know, this bud's for you. Would you like a bud? I personally, the Lord taught me years ago, asked me years ago, and I put it up. I gave it up in the mid-80s not to drink. And so I don't look at it as a fence to say, oh, no, thank you. Do you, do you got water, or you got soda, or you Dr. Pepper? I love Dr. Pepper. You know, you got something like that? You don't have to make a big deal about it. But take a stand for your faith. Because you have no idea when you leave if they're going to finish the six-pack or the 12-pack or a case. You have no idea. So you don't, again, you don't have to make a big deal about it, but you can take a stand, a polite stand, so that when you leave, they can say, wow, that's kind of interesting. You know, they didn't, they didn't have anything to drink, but they didn't put us down. Because, you know, the Bible says you can drink. The Bible says that. You can drink alcohol if you want to. But if one beer gets you tipsy, and you might think, oh, that would never happen to me. Yeah, one beer can affect people. If it affects you, then you shouldn't have a beer. You shouldn't have a glass of wine. That's scriptural. So just be aware of the scriptures. Be aware of your own body. Be aware of those you're around so that you don't cause someone to stumble and live your Christian faith. This is what Paul is sharing here. Conscience, I say, not for your own, but for the other in verse 29. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks... Why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? You see, Paul is basically saying, even when we do the right thing, we can be misunderstood. So it comes down to balance. Seek out balance in your life and remember to bless others. Bless others. You're a Christian. There's a lot of non-Christians that we deal with. The majority of people that we deal with in our lives are most likely non-Christians. So they're looking at you, what makes you different than them. And we need to give them that loving example. Verses 31 through 33. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, Paul goes on to say here, notice that, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a great exhortation, isn't it? Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men or mankind in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. See, Paul gives us his own personal goal. You see, he looked beyond his own temporal desires, hoping that he might impact someone with the free gift of salvation. That's what he just said there in those three verses. He looked beyond his own temporal desires. 
And notice that Paul makes mention of three groups here. The unsaved Jew, the unsaved Jew, the unsaved Gentile. In the world, there's two groups of people. If you have Jewish blood in you, DNA, then you're a Jew. If you do not, you're a Gentile. That's it. There's only two groups of people. One human race, two groups of people. But then he also talks to the Jews, the, the saved Jews, the believing Jews, and the believing Gentiles, the third group. So the unsaved Jews, the unsaved Gentiles, and now the body of Christ, which is commonly called the church. So he shows his audience the ultimate goal of his Christian liberties, focusing on someone else instead of focusing upon myself. He was willing to lay down anything that his flesh might desire in order to have a witness or a testimony to the Jew, to the Gentile, and yes, even to those within the church. You see, please, notice the word please there. In verse 33, that word please, it means to be agreeable. To be agreeable. To accommodate oneself to the opinions, desires, and interests of others. Now, obviously, after that definition, we want to add, that doesn't mean we compromise and sin. No, we never want to do that. But we can agree with someone to disagree. We can accommodate their opinion without condoning or agreeing with their sin. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Just turn a page, if you even have to, to your left, 19 through 22. And let's look at the, Paul's heart once again. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, For though I am free from all men or mankind, I have made myself a servant to all. Notice that. So we studied about a month ago. You see, you and I as believers, we are slaves. We are not our own. We have been purchased with the blood of Christ. We are bond servants. So we're not our own. We have a master. That I might, why? That I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. Now again, he didn't compromise. He didn't condone sin. He wasn't going back to the law and saying, okay, I'm going to meet all the requirements of the law because he knew that was impossible. And he also taught us in the Bible that's been one sacrifice and that blood covers all of the law. So when you read the scriptures, you don't want to say, well, you know, they drink. So, and this is coming into the church. This is hard to believe. But this is actually coming into the church where even the pastors will say, it's okay to drink. Matter of fact, I'll go out and have a drink with you. That's foolishness. That is absolute foolishness. I've already covered that. That's absolute foolishness. You have no idea who you're dealing with. You have no idea what problem they might have. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law. Not being without law towards God, but under the law towards Christ, which would be love. Love is the ultimate expression of the law. That I might win those who are without the law. Notice Paul's goal. Eternal, eternal, eternal. Not temporal, eternal. I want to win somebody for Jesus. I don't know how that's going to play out, if it even will play out, but I don't want to give anybody an excuse to condemn me or to cause someone to stumble. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all men, again, mankind, that I might by means save some. And we know that Paul didn't save, God saves, but he does need you and I to be those hands and feet of the Christian. So again, Christian liberties. We have to deal with Christian liberties. And then we're going to get into some right now as we move into chapter 11. And so as we go over these verses, don't get hung up or tune out because of the issue of hair. 
As we get into these next verses, it's going to be like, this has nothing to do with me. I really don't care, so I'm going to check out. Please don't do that. With certain scriptures, we need to step back and look at the bigger picture. The bigger picture. That way we don't become judgmental over what members in the church might or might not do. Verse 1. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Imitate followers. Imitator is even as I do, even as I also am of Christ. As long as Paul is following the example of Christ, then imitate that example as well. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is not trying to draw attention to himself, but his desire to imitate the life of Christ. And I believe, I really believe that is our desire as well. I believe every Christian in this room that you have a desire to do that. I have a desire to do that. Do we fall short? Yes. So oftentimes because we fall short, then we lay that desire aside and say, well, it's hopeless, it's useless, I can't do this, I can't do that, so I'm just going to go to church on Sunday morning, punch the clock, and hopefully I get to heaven. Ah, that's not a good idea. That's from the pit of hell. The enemy doesn't want you to be used. So you cannot live like that. You cannot think like that. Have you ever seen someone do something godly and you found yourself thinking or saying, I, I wish I could do that. I wish I could be like that. And that's not a bad wish, but it could be a misconception. You see, if you see something godly taking place in someone's life, you could do the same. Rand, you want to throw that one up there? You could do the same. Again, oftentimes we elevate people, which we should never do. We elevate the pastorate or the elders or the deacons or whoever's doing the Sunday school. or We elevate people. Don't elevate people. Thank people. Yeah, nothing wrong with doing that. Thank them for serving. Praise God. But unfortunately, when you elevate somebody, you put yourself down and you think, I could never do that. And the reason that they are doing that, if they don't know this, they'll eventually learn it, is because the Holy Spirit is inspiring them to do it and giving them the strength to do it. So it's Holy Spirit driven. It's Holy Spirit inspired. It's Holy Spirit and driven. And we take no credit for that. that. That's just God. That's God working through us. See, it's a matter of dying to self, which is hard to do. Putting others first while serving the Lord. Does that mean that you're always going to see that person behaving godly? Not on this side of heaven. Not going to happen. So this is the point. All of us have an opportunity to be an example for someone else. As we read this, immediately we could check out and go, whoa, I would never say that. I wouldn't want somebody to follow me. Why not? You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But you're a believer. You know better. You, you mean you couldn't, tell, you couldn't ask anybody to follow you at all? You haven't grown at all in your life as a Christian? I think right now you're going, oh, no, I've grown. Then don't be afraid to say this. And maybe it's even a challenge this morning to grow more, to get out of that rut or to get out of that comfort zone and say, you know what? If I did say, ask somebody to do that for me, what would they see? You know what? I need to get rid of this and I should do better at that. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. Don't condemn yourself because God's not condemning you. Don't beat yourself up. God's not beating you up. But it's an exhortation to be more like Jesus. What does that look like in your life? What does that look like in your life? Verse 2, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. You see, Paul gives the Corinthians a pat on the back for obeying the ordinances, the traditions, or the precepts that were passed on to them. 
You see, the Jewish people had a tremendous ability to pass on the word of God orally. The word of God orally. They obviously didn't have the printing press. They had scrolls that took years to write. When somebody challenges you, how do you know the Bible is right? Take them for a history lesson, a scroll through history. It would take years to write. Matter of fact, the book of Isaiah was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can still view them on the internet. 2,100 years old. Exactly the same as the book of Isaiah that we have today. Exactly the same. There's 12 differences, not word differences, just little niches. They can't differentiate exactly. It doesn't change the text or the context. 66 chapters, 2,100 years old, exactly the same as our book of Isaiah today. Can you trust the Bible? Absolutely. Because it would take years to write it out. They would count the letters horizontally. They would count the letters vertically. And if there was one letter off and they were in chapter 65, they would take the whole scroll and burn it. Might take three years. You're just about ready to finish it. You find a mistake. They would burn three years of your life because it had to be perfect for the next generation. So can you trust the Bible? Absolutely. But people will mock it and ridicule and, oh, how can you trust it? Very easily. You see, the common man didn't have access to those scrolls, so they relied heavily upon the oral traditions or precepts passed on by their Jewish fathers. Remember earlier that Paul had made mention of the Corinthians being his own spiritual children. Think about that. You're my children. Paul was a Pharisee. Guys, think, you might not know this, but a Pharisee had to have the first five books of the Bible memorized word perfect. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Who wants to memorize Numbers? Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible, word perfect. Why? You are blessed to have a Bible on your lap. And then you can go on the internet or you can go on your device and you can look up 10, 15, 20 different translations of the Bible. They didn't have that back then. Illiteracy was very, very high. So they had to have the oral. They had to have the vocal. That's how they passed it on. But we still do have the written. Very, very important. So he's commending them for adhering to those precepts that were taught by him. Verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, let's go, down, let's go to chapter 12. We don't want to deal with that, right? <laughs> Church is so fun, isn't it? You see, when you go verse by verse, you have to teach the uncomfortable verses as well as the comfortable verses. The uncomfortable as well as the comfortable. So, pastor, how are you going to dig yourself out of this? I'm not going to dig at all. I'm just going to read the Bible. It's the manual. It's the manual. You see, Paul teaches a principle within his answering a cultural question that we'll get into a few minutes. So what do we see within this verse? What do we see? Ladies, married or unmarried, don't get upset at the word of God. Just look at what it says. What do you see in the verse there? That God, big, remember what I mentioned earlier? That big picture? That God is a God 
of order. That's what you should see in that verse. That God is a God of order. Again, let's read it again. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. You see, the Bible never has and will never, does not condone the degrading of women. Matter of fact, we have seen over and over again that women have been set free and are elevated within and by the word of God. Women were a key component of the ministry of Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, Luke tells us that Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and others shared of their substance to support the ministry of Jesus. The first time, the very first time, that Jesus spoke of being the Messiah, the very first time, before he told his disciples, he told it to a woman at the well who had been married five times and was living together in fornication, unmarried. He told her, a woman, that he was the Messiah, very first time. Who was at the tomb? Were the disciples at the tomb? They were scared. Who went to the tomb? Women. Who did Jesus first appear to? Mary, a woman. Women are elevated. Women are in their rightful place. There's no doubt that women have a vital role in society and specifically the family unit. You see, God is not addressing the value or importance of man versus a woman in this verse. But if you just read it and run with it, that's what you're going to think. So you've got to step back and look at the bigger picture. Big picture, again. He's addressing God's order, and that, that order can be seen clearly within the family structure. Notice in this verse that Christ is the head of the husband and that the husband is the head of the wife. The head obviously represents order or authority. So men, if you desire your wife to follow your lead, you need to become more like Jesus. You need to become more like Jesus. Jesus needs to be your head, your authority, your guide, And when you allow that to take place, your wife will lovingly follow your lead. She might not always agree with you. Been married 40 years. Claudia has not always agreed with me. But because we pray together as a husband and a wife on a regular basis, we're we're in our Bibles individually, allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to us. And we can also bring it together corporately within our marriage or as a family. She knows that I'm trying my best to seek after God and God's will for our marriage, for my life, for her life. She has that ability to submit and to know that I'm lovingly taking care of her, protecting her to the best of my ability. Have I failed? Yes. But because I've been doing those things and you men can do the same thing, I can say to my wife, that was a bad decision. I learned from it. I will never make that again. I'll never make that mistake again. I now have that freedom to fail with my wife supporting me, not saying, I told you so. I told you you shouldn't do that. 
What do you think a husband's going to do to a wife that says that? He's going to go out and make the same dumb mistake again to prove her wrong. Whereas you as a wife or future wife, if you're praying together as a couple, you're doing your devotions privately or together, you're fellowshipping, you're seeking counsel, and you lovingly say to your husband, you know what? I gave my input. You're the head of the house. You make the final decision because you're protecting me. That's the goal is to protect our wives in case you haven't figured this out. Our goal as men is to protect our wives physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Actually, four things. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Four things. All you men should be, think- should be thinking about that if you're married or not. And notice that it says that God is the head of Jesus. Notice that in verse 3. And the head of Christ is God. Does that mean that God has more authority than Jesus? Again, it just means that there is order in heaven, and it was exemplified even while Jesus was on this earth. Have some slides here. Matthew 26, 39. For the sake of time, take a picture or write down the reference. Jesus went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus submitted to the Father. In John 5, 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. How about John 16, 13? However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. And we know here the spirit, capital S, is the Holy Spirit. For he will not speak on his own authority. Notice this. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he will take of mine and declare it to you. So we see that there's order in heaven. Jesus submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit submits to Jesus. There's order. But we read in 1 John 5, 7, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. So just as there is heavenly order, there must be earthly order, and that's one reason why our spiritual enemy is attacking the family more than ever. He desires to destroy that God-ordained order. Verse 4, even men praying or prophesying have his, having his head covered dishonors his head. Now we start getting into some stuff that might be controversial. We see no scriptural teaching as far as men wearing a veil or a head covering in their prayer life. We do see the high priest, that he would wear a mitre. The priest would wear a cap when serving in the temple area, and it was a sign to show that they were mourning over sin, bringing the sacrifices. I sinned, the people sinned. Since Jesus took our sins away once for all, there's no need for priests to cover their heads. Revelation 1, 5, and 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and washed us from our sins in his, within his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, God sees us as holy and unblameable in his sight. Verses 5 and 6, and verse 15. But every woman who prays or prophesies, 
speaks the word, with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shaved or shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shaved or shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Now look at verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So don't worry about the length of the hair. Focus on the covering, the authority. So even if you're single, God is your covering. You have become a priestess. So who is the head of the wife? Her husband. Now again, culturally, when women wore veils, they were stating that they were married. It's like a ring in our culture or many cultures. They were signifying their purity as well as a relationship to being under the protection and authority of a husband. Those who didn't wear veils were obviously available for marriage, but not wearing a veil could also have been a sign of a prostitute. So going back to the cultural teaching and Paul's addressing Christian liberties, Paul is saying that women in the church should pray with their heads covered, whether married or not, so as to not cause someone else to stumble. Just as with a man, Jesus is the ultimate head of the woman. So if you're not married, Jesus is your head. Verse 7, for a man indeed ought to cover his head, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Skip down to verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, so before anybody gets upset, don't elbow your mate. Neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man comes, also comes through woman, but all things are from God. You see, I personally believe that Paul is teaching the Corinthians to not focus on the external appearance but on the eternal principle in all of these verses. As I already mentioned, God is a God of order, and a husband and a wife are an integral representation of that order. We cannot do without each other and must work together to glorify God. When Jesus was creating, at the end of each day, we see that God said, saw, he saw that it was good. But after he created man, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. He caused a deep sleep to come upon Adam and he created Eve from his side, not from his head, that he might rule over her, not from his feet, that he might walk on her, but from his side to be a helpmate, a suitable partner for life. Verse 10, you see there's certain authority in heaven and there's not an angel, fallen or not, that would question that authority. Verse 10, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority over her head, whether that's a husband or whether that's Christ, if you're a single gal, because of the angels. So again, don't get hung up. Look at the bigger picture. The angels know there's authority in heaven. There is no question, even the fallen angels. So we should have order as well. Verses 13 and 14, as we get ready to wrap it up. Judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if, you, if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But again, 
But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But, verse 16 wraps it up really well, if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor the churches of God. So we can see culturally that at that time it was proper for women to pray with a veil on. And notice that it was a dishonor for a man to have long hair. Interesting. But the important part is that Paul says it's a dishonor but not a sin. And when you look up the word dishonor, it means disgrace. And when you look up disgrace, the definition, a state of being out of favor or dishonorable. Being out, a state of being out of favor. So let's make this relevant or applicable to our culture today. Do you know in some Christian churches that it's a disgrace? Okay, remember we got this, disgrace. It's a disgrace to teach the word of God in jeans. Wearing a casual shirt in sneakers with white socks. That's a disgrace. It's dishonorable. For some Christians, it's a disgrace to have drums or other loud instruments on the platform. To others, it's a disgrace to go to church that's meeting in a local shopping center. It was a disgrace in the 70s that hippies were coming to church with no shoes on. They literally walked into church, long hair, no shoes. This happened at Calvary Chapel. The elders came to Pastor Chuck and said, Pastor Chuck, you've got to do something. These kids are ruining the carpet. Oil from their feet were ruining the carpet. And Pastor Chuck said, let's tear out the carpet. Let's tear out the carpet. Sinners coming to church to hear the word of God and getting saved was a disgrace. There are so many examples of cultural beliefs that make no sense scripturally. So I think, again, Paul wraps it up perfectly. You see, the church is not about those types of issues, but those within the church representing godly order. Godly order. That's the big picture of these verses. Don't get hung up in it. Read from Genesis to Revelation. And I encourage you, why don't we all stand, sing a closing song. I encourage you to come out to marriage enrichment or the family fellowship, to men's Bible studies, to women's Bible studies, to home groups. I encourage you to get plugged in so that you might learn from Genesis to Revelation. And please be reading from Genesis to Revelation so that you might get the whole counsel of God because it's so easy. You could see how we could take some of these verses out of context. And man, I could really rip, right? But it'd be out of context. Read your Bible, learn the context, cross-reference other scriptures, get the bigger picture. God is a God of order. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God of order. Even though our world seems to be out of order, that's because you're not the author of confusion. The enemy is our spiritual enemy, and he, he is called the God, little g. He is called the God of this world. So we're not surprised. He has come to deceive he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. The family unit has been under attack for decades, and we're now seeing the fruit of that deception. And so, Lord, we pray for our lives as believers that we would not be deceived, but we would stand firm in the faith. We'd stand firm in the traditions, in the precepts, in the word of God that we'd learn them, that we'd be examples of them to the unbeliever as well as to others in the church. Lord, I pray for the afternoon that you bless the marriage enrichment, 
those who are strong, that they would come to encourage the whole group on how to make a marriage work. That those who are weak would come. There's no judgment and they don't have to admit their weakness. Just come and be involved and build and work on their marriage. Lord, ask your blessing upon all aspects of this ministry and every Bible-believing church, Lord, that you will be glorified in and through your word in these last days. Lord, give us focus on the eternal, not to argue over the temporal. As we're seeing happening throughout the week, arguing over the temporal when people are going to hell. Lord, lift our eyes as we go out into our mission field that we'll stay focused on the eternal. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.